Hope you'll keep your Bibles open there to Ephesians chapter 5. Well, maybe some of you are familiar with that modern literary classic, I doubt that you are, Rick and Bubba's Guide to the Almost Nearly Perfect Marriage. Anybody got that book on your on your shelf? I, I doubt that you do. These two southern stooges, I, I mean southern state, uh, sages of holy matrimony write this. They say Aretha Franklin sang a song about it, and Rodney Dangerfield never seemed to get enough of it, and the Bible has plenty to say about it, especially when it comes to how husbands and wives ought to treat one another. What is it? Respect. R-E-S-P-E-C-T. You don't want me to sing that for you. <laughs> They say, in Ephesians 5, God uses the Apostle Paul to tell us how marriage ought to be. Dr. Phil is good, they say, but Paul's words don't have any commercial interruptions. <laughs> Close quote. Well, we're going to be talking about marriage for the next couple of weeks. And you know, marriage, whether you realize it or not, is God's idea, not man's. Marriage is not defined, defined by Congress It's not defined by the Supreme Court of the United States. Marriage is ordained and defined by God. You can take that to the bank. It's not left. It's not right. It's up who gets to decide what marriage is and is not about. The Holy Spirit, in fact, highlights this particular point in our passage this morning. The most extensive treatment on the subject of marriage anywhere to be found in the New Testament by citing the culminating scene of the creation account found in the book of Genesis. We find it here in Ephesians 5, verse 31, where Paul says, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's awesome. It's beautiful. Listen, Paul, as almost anyone here who's been to a Christian wedding in the last 50 or 100 years knows, lifts this beautiful and poignant statement right out of the original account of creation. Paul does not invent this. He reminds us of this. That account in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, where God himself serves as the very first wedding officiant as well as the proud father of the bride, as God graciously and lovingly prepares a perfect helpmate for Adam out of his own flesh and bone, and then gives this custom-designed creature and companion to the awestruck man. Whoa, man, Adam says, right? Eve's perfection is then poetically expressed by Adam in a poem of intimate and ecstatic praise. He says in verse 23 of Genesis 2, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. The Hebrew for man is ish, and the Hebrew for woman is isha. She was taken out of man. And then comes Moses' own inspired Polaroid, as if he's taking pictures of this first wedding, where he writes in verse 24, what we also find in Ephesians 5, 31, Therefore, 
A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. This reminding us it was before the fall of mankind, as we read that verse. Adam and Eve, the perfect couple, in perfect communion, in a perfect creation. Now, sounds just like your home and mine, right? Well, no, sadly, not really. Friends, regrettably, to a whole lot of people, this all sounds like uh, the stuff of Hollywood flicks and fairy tales, doesn't it? For many, marriage is more hell on earth and less made in heaven, at least most of the time. Ever since our Edenic parents ate the forbidden fruit, Marriage has been the union of two broken, selfish, and utterly sinful people. As Pastor Ray Stedman poignantly puts it, there is no area of life in which conflict is more widespread than this. The oldest battle of all time is still the battle of the sexes. The longest war ever waged is the war that goes on between husbands and wives. Close quote. Now, that's sad because it's true. Pastor Tim Keller, in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, which is a tremendous book on the subject, agrees, saying marriage is glorious but hard. It's a burning joy and strength, and yet it is also blood, sweat, and tears. It's made of humbling defeats and exhausting victories. All of this, friends, is to simply state the obvious that marriage is both messy and frustrating. I mean, fantastic. (laughs) It is. It's frustrating. And it is fantastic. As our text here in Ephesians 5, 22 to following reminds us, marriage is also something more than frustrating. It's also tremendously illuminating. See, marriage is a window into a world of wonder. And love. For here we discover that God created marriage to point us to Christ and to Christ's love for the church. Marriage is about the gospel. God designed marriage to be wonderfully, to wonderfully reveal, to reflect the love that Jesus Christ has for us as his church, as his bride. Marriage has been called the costly commitment. Marriage is a precious partnership full of pain, but full of wonder. Marriage done God's way, according to Paul here in Ephesians, is a powerful reminder and a glorious demonstration itself in the heavenly realms of the triumph of God's plan to unite all things under Christ. As Dr. Richard Koken put it, Among God's people, marriage is no longer a battlefield, but rather a field of victory, where sinners can remain united to each other in the service of Christ. He says, it is given by God as the most wonderful illustration of Christ's covenant love for His church. Close quote. That's so true. And if you've been paying attention... Ephesians, we are now hearing, is all about reconciliation. 
It is about God reconciling man to himself. It is about God reconciling Jew to Gentile. And it's even about God reconciling husbands and wives to one another. Ephesians is all about reconciliation. Think about this subject of marriage, friends. It is so significant and even so central to the story of the Bible and to the very heart of the gospel that it is such a perfect portrait of Christ's own sacrificial love and commitment to His church that not only does the Bible begin with a wedding, but the Bible also ends with a wedding. Did you know that? It's true in Revelation chapter 19 and also in chapter 21 of the book of Revelation. We actually find a foreshadowing of the culmination of Christ's sanctifying work and the consummation of our future rule and reign with Him in heaven through the motif of marriage. Marriage is not some side show. It is front and center in the Bible. Revelation 19, verse 6 and following, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Listen to me, friend. We are not merely honored guests to somebody else's wedding. We, as the church, are Christ's loving, His loving attention is set on us. We are His bride as the church. John sees the same image in a different way in Revelation 21 at the beginning of that chapter where he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Notice, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And the hairs on the back of our necks ought to stand on end in anticipation of that being true of us. He loves you. He loves us. So look, Pastor Tim Keller puts it very well when he calls the mystery of the gospel unveiled. That's marriage. The mystery of the gospel unveiled. He says, marriage is the major vehicle for the gospel's remaking of your heart from the inside out and your life from the ground up. The reason that marriage is so painful and yet so wonderful is because it is a reflection of the gospel, which is both painful and wonderful all at once. He says, this is the gospel. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. And yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Christ Jesus than we ever dared hope. 
That's the gospel. This is the only kind of relationship that will really transform us. Love without truth is mere sentimentality. It supports and affirms, but it keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. God's saving love in Christ, however, is marked by both radical truthfulness about who we are and yet also radical, unconditional commitment to us. The hard times of marriage drive us to experience more of this transforming love of God. But a good marriage will also be a place where we experience more of this kind of transforming love at a human level, close quote. If you're married... Your spouse is God's gift to make you holy, to make you more like Jesus. So listen, Ephesians 5, 22 to, 20, to 33, a text we've read and maybe heard, spoken on maybe a thousand times before, is fundamentally about Jesus Christ and his precious love for the church. I'm going to say that again and again, because for the life of me, I don't know why we miss that point so often. We go to this text and we go to husbands. We go to this text and we go to wives and we miss Jesus Christ. So I'm going to preach this text twice, today and next Sunday, and today's all about Jesus and us. Next week is about husbands and wives. But if you prioritize husbands and wives without going to Jesus and the church, you will miss the point of this passage. And you will misappropriate, you will misapply this passage to your lives as husbands and wives. Let me put it another way. This text is not firstly or even primarily about a husband's command to love his wife, nor about a wife's command to honor and respect her husband. It is not about that firstly. It is about that, but not about that firstly. These verses are wonderfully recorded for us, but they are not ultimately about us, at least if we define us in terms of husbands and wives. It is about us if we define that in terms of Jesus and the church. This passage, again, is preeminently about the person and work of Jesus, the husband of the church, and his redeeming love for us. See, Paul's point here in this text is that every single marriage on earth is to reflect and remind us of Christ's love for the body. That's the whole point. Your marriage and my marriage are to be little signs pointing to a greater reality. Your marriage is not about you, ultimately. It's about Jesus' love for you and for the world. It is that marriage reproduces in miniature the purifying and sanctifying beauty between the bridegroom and the bride, between Christ and the church. In fact, if you were to diagram Ephesians 5, 22 to 33, which we're going to do in just a moment to, sh- to prove my point, you would find that Paul's key thought in this entire section crescendos in verse 27. And his point is that Christ himself is the Savior and even the sanctifier of the saints. Let me say that again. Christ alone is the Savior and the sanctifier of the saints. That's the point of this beautiful text, Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. So look, Paul's discussion and description of husbands and wives is hugely important. I mean, 
We need to hear this today, friends. Marriages are breaking down and falling apart left and right. We need this passage, but we need to rightly examine this passage. And we will come to the nuts and bolts of assessment of what spirit-filled homes that reflect the mercy and goodness and beauty of God's love look like next week. you got to come back for part two. But listen, human marriage here, now, and today is a means to an end. And that end is the making of, of Christ's glory and beauty in His love for us, the church. Your marriage is not about your love. It is about Christ's love for us. So again, let's take a look at this text that I read for us a few moments ago. But now I want to orient you to the passage itself. And as we do so, we will see Paul's ultimate point here in the context of Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, the duties of the believer, as he's pressing home what spirit-filled, sanctified marriages and homes, and he's going to come to children and parents and even to employers and employees in just a couple of weeks, how these all tell the great story of the gospel, how all of our horizontal relationships reflect a vertical reconciliation between God and man. Here we discover that a marriage that is filled with the Spirit wonderfully reflects the sanctifying love of Christ. Let's listen to the text again. Ephesians 5, 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, the word submit is not in the original text in verse 22. It is supplied from the context going back to verse 21. Submit one to another out of reverence for Christ. In the original language, the word submit is not found there. It's actually being pulled into this entire uh, next section. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Notice, as to the Lord. Verse 23. And as you see on the screen behind me, you're going to see the diagram of the text as, as I see it. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body. Maybe some of you that are students of the New Testament, you're saying, okay, this is beginning to look like a chiastic structure, a chiasm. That, that's exactly right. We're going to go from A to letter G, and G is going to be the crux, the center point or the focal point of this entire passage. And then we're going to find it reflects back all the way in a beautiful symmetry form uh, to the end of the text. Verse, uh, uh, the second part of verse 23, as he is himself its savior. Verse 24, this is D up on the screen. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And now we're getting to that real sweet spot of this particular section, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, and here's the middle part, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. Friend, I submit to you that is the center and the focus of this entire text, that Christ might present us to himself in splendor. Now, as we move on for the next slide, we're going we're gonna to see how each of these next statements reflect back to what they parallel in the first half. Interestingly, there are seven levels, seven being the number of, of completion or perfection to this particular uh, paragraph. Without spot, spot, I said that earlier too, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, you notice that E here, parallels back to verse 25, 
if you have your Bible open there, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Verse 30 parallels back to the second part of verse, uh, verse 23. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And now Paul sort of has an explanatory statement here. This mystery is profound. He calls it a, a mega mystery here. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. And now here's the final line. And let the wife see that she re- respects her husband. Do you see the, the structure of the passage is driving to the meaning of the passage? Guys, let me ask you a simple question. Do you want to know how to love your wife better? I know that I do. For 21 years, I've been learning to love my wife better. Here's how you do it. You look to Jesus' example, and you follow it. Look to Christ's own example of his love for you, and then apply it in your love for your wife, and you'll be on the right track. Husbands, Paul says in verse 25, love your wives as Christ loved the church. There's our standard and gave himself up for her. Ladies, particularly those of you that are married, do you want to know how to better honor and respect your husbands? Listen to the wisdom of Jesus, which candidly and lovingly is contrary to the wisdom of this world. See, we hear the word submit, and we immediately get our our backs up. What do you mean I have to submit? See, Jesus' wisdom is better. Follow his wisdom. Follow his wisdom. Husbands and wives and those who are single, because this passage applies to you as well, those that are engaged to be married, those that are widowed or, or widowers, those that are divorced even, everyone in the church, do you want to understand the key to forgiveness? And a self-sacrifice and a patient and godly love in all of your relationships. Well then, listen, we need to lean completely on the example and the work of Christ. Placing our hope and trust in His death and resurrection from the grave. Because Jesus, friend, is the provider and the protector and the purifier that we've all been looking for. He's the one, and if you put anybody else in his place, it's not going to work out. He's the one that we need. He is the one that our hearts have been always longing for and looking for. Jesus' love both sanctifies and sets the standard for all other loves. As someone has said, it is far less of a leap for a man to love a woman or for a woman to love a man than for either of us to love God. It's far less of a leap. And yet, through the grace of God, and through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are loved by the Lord, even when we are not worthy of that love. We are loved by Him, and we are made better by His love. And that is the picture of the gospel that Paul presents for us. So, in the balance of our time this morning, I I simply want to summarize this passage by giving five characteristics of Christ's love for you and for me as the church. 
Again, we're going to spend two weeks on this text. There's so much here, but today we're focusing really simply on how this passage presents Jesus' love for us as His church. And I think there are five characteristics that leap from this passage for you and for me. Let me give them to you here, and then I'll take uh, each one in turn. Christ's love for the church is a perfect love. His love is perfect. We, we don't understand that as fallen sinful human beings, what it means to love or to be loved in a perfect way outside of Christ. On our best day, we underperform to try, when we try to love perfectly. But Christ, in His love, it is perfect. Secondly, Christ's love for His church is a purifying love. It's a purifying love. It does something for us and in us. Thirdly, Christ's love for the church is what Paul says, a profound love. And we'll look at that quickly. Fourth, Christ's love for the church is a purposeful love. It purifies, but it also does something else in terms of meeting our needs. And then finally, Christ's love for his church is a permanent love. So these are the five characteristics that I want us to look at very briefly this morning. Firstly, Christ's love for his church is a perfect love. Amen? I think of 1 John 4, 18 in my study about 4, 15 this morning. As I'm sitting there thinking and praying, I, I, this verse kept coming back to my mind. 1 John 4, 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. If I were to ask you, you'd probably say you have fear often in your love. A parental fear, a, a spousal fear, a, a, a fear in your relationships in your workplace. But perfect love casts out fear. See, marriage itself is a picture of Christ's perfect love for His people, for the bride, for the church. The gospel tells us that sinful people like you and I can actually have a chance with God. We can be in a loving, life-giving, eternal relationship with Mr. Perfect himself, Jesus Christ. I'll never forget being given a little toy doll early on in our marriage. I don't think you gave it to me, Laurie. <laughs> Must have been my mother-in-law, probably. It was simply called Mr. Wonderful. Did you guys ever get Mr. Wonderful, the little doll? Am I the only one who ever received Mr. Wonderful? Mr. Wonderful had a little hand that you pressed his hand, and one of 16 different sayings came out of his lap. Who's seen Mr. Wonderful before, besides looking up here? No, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Some of these are not appropriate for church, but let me just tell you a couple of them. Here's one of the sayings. You would squeeze Mr. Wonderful's hand, and it would say, here, honey, you take the remote. As long as I'm with you, I don't care what's on TV. That was one of the sayings for Mr. Wonderful. This one hit pretty close to home. The ball game really doesn't matter. I'd rather spend time with you. That was another, that was another one. And, and, and one of my favorite, when you squeeze Mr. Wonderful's hand, it said, Aw, can't your mother stay another week? <laughs> well, listen. Jesus, he's Mr. Wonderful. His love is perfect. His, lover never, his love never fails. In fact, love is at the very forefront of this passage. Six times our favorite word, Greek word, you guys all know this word, for love occurs. Agapao. 
God's agape love, His unconditional love, His perfect love for us occurs in this passage six times. Twice in verse 25, three times in verse 28, and once in verse 33. Another way of saying that Jesus' love is perfect is that His love is sacrificial. Sacrificial. And so this is why our love so seldom rises to the level of perfection is because we are so self-oriented and so selfish. Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And then what does Paul say? And gave. He's unpacking what Christ's perfect love looks like by saying that Jesus gave himself up for her. That's the very definition of godly love, is to give, not to demand, not to lay claim, but to serve. I think of 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, another great verse, where Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Why? So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Jesus loved us, Not so much by demanding much of us, but by delivering much for us. By laying it down for us. Romans 5, 8, who doesn't know this verse? But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Many uh, folks that do marriage counseling may say, guys, marriage is a 50-50 proposition. And I think that's a proposition for disaster. I'll meet you halfway is a proposition for divorce court, to be honest with you. It is not 50-50. It is give your all. Give your all and let grace come on back. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Christ's love for you and for me, and maybe this is news to some of you because you're new to this thing called the church, is a perfect kind of love. If you've never been loved by Jesus, you've never known a perfect love. Pastor Kent Hughes, one of my favorites, has said, marital love is like death. Here's a cheery thought. It wants all of us. It wants all of us. A man who embraces such a love will experience the grace of death itself, for marriage is a call to die. And a man who does not die for his wife does not come close to the love to which he has been called. Christian marriage marriage vows are the inception of a lifelong practice of death, of giving not only all that you have, but all that you are. So again, today is about the standard, and that standard is the Son, That son is our savior, and he's the one who deserves the spotlight. So when we see Jesus' love, we see a perfect kind of love. And when you've been loved by a perfect kind of love, you are transformed. And that's what Paul says next. Because not only is Christ's love a perfect love, it's a purifying sort of love. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her purpose clause... That, or so that, he might sanctify her, 
having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. I think it was Gary Thomas who has written a series of books, one of those books being Sacred Marriage, and he poses a, a, a sort of a question that changes our perspective. He says, what if marriage is meant more to make you holy than to make you happy? Such a, such a great statement, because we tend to define marriage in terms of what benefits me, what makes me happy. But Pastor Thomas says, no, what if God intended marriage to make us holy first? And then out of that holiness comes a real happiness. You see, Jesus' love for the church is not simply just sacrificial, it is sanctifying. See, this is the thing about us. We think people love us when they want to spoil us. When they want to give us all that we want, all that we demand. But any parent knows that's not real love. If you never use the word no, are you really loving your children? My kids must think that I really love them. (laughs) They hear that word sometimes, oftentimes. No, to really love is not to spoil, but to set apart, to sanctify, to make one better than you were before. That's the love of Jesus. His love sanctifies us. It purifies us. It changes us. We are more than we were because Christ has loved us. I can tell you without any hesitation or qualification that being loved by Laurie for 21 years has made me a radically better man because she has loved me with faithfulness and with grace upon grace in moments that I did not deserve it. And it has had an effect to change me from the inside out. And I'll tell you one more thing. She could not do that if she did not know it from Christ himself. That's what marriage is meant to be. Two sinners being being loved by a perfect Savior and reflecting that love imperfectly to one another for the glory and honor of Almighty God. That's my prayer for every home in this church, that we would be sanctified. In fact, I think Paul is drawing upon Ezekiel chapter 16 in this particular line, in this particular thought. Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 8 to 14, has a statement and really kind of a context that I think is very appropriate for what Paul is saying here. Ezekiel 16, verse 8 says, and this is of God who loved a faithless bride, Israel, when I passed by you again, I saw you. Behold, you were at the age of love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. And I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. That sounds like marriage. Then I bathed you with water. That's the same expression that I think is showing up in Ephesians chapter 5. I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. And I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adored you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. 
and I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil and you grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. Do you know what this is ultimately talking about? Us. And the perfect righteousness of Jesus being wrapped over us who only possessed garments of rags in our rebellion. This is a picture of us. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord your God. What a picture of God's purifying love in Christ for us. Thirdly, Christ's love is not merely perfect and effectively purifying, it is also utterly profound. Christ's love for the church is profound. Verse 32 is interesting. Paul says in the Greek, this is a mega mysterion. This mystery is big time. It is profound. See, marriage is a picture that when developed, reveals the wisdom of God and the wonder of the gospel. Our marriages are, are really maybe the, the negative that reveal the reality of Christ and his love for the church in terms of photography. A truly Christian marriage then mirrors the relationship and love that Jesus has for his bride. Again, Paul himself, who was never married to our knowledge, reached the bottom of the, uh, never reached the bottom of the fathomless blessings of knowing Christ in faith. He's, he talks about that in many different places, including Romans 11.33, where he says, I love this, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable are his ways. Are you bored with the love of Jesus? How can we be? Paul says it is a profound love. That means you basically wake up and it's Christmas Day over and over and over again, revealing and unpacking all sorts of new ways that Jesus loves you and me. Do you know that love? If you know that love, you will testify that it is a profound, surprising, purifying sort of love. Brian, I think we're on the same page this week. You chose one song that I had here in my manuscript. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Vast, unmeasured, boundless, and free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Underneath me, all around me, is the current of thy love, leading onward, leading homeward to thy glorious rest above. If, if that doesn't poignantly and perfectly describe the love of God, I don't know what does. It's not just sort of over there, It's all around. It's within. His love is overwhelming. His love is for us. And so the love of Jesus, like marriage itself, is full of new and profound truths month after month and year after year. Let me tell you, I'm still learning beautiful things about love 21 years in, in my marriage. And if the Lord allows, I'll be learning till the day that I die. Because I'm going first. Number four, 
Christ's love for his church is also a purposeful love. It is a purposeful love. That is to say, Christ's love is useful. Christ's love is practical for us. Guys, I don't recommend lingering in the practically oriented gift aisles at the store. But Jesus gets us something we can use in his love for us. We could say that Jesus' love is sacrificial and it is sanctifying. And then thirdly, it is a self-love. Kent Hughes helps us see that. It's a self-love. That is, it's effective. And notice from the text where we find this in verse 28 and following. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. What has Jesus given to us? Everything, but specifically he's given us the spirit and the word to grow up into our our salvation. He has not left us with a promise. Oh guys, remember that I love you. And then he leaves us. No, he said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you because he lives within us by the power of his spirit. And he's given us a a sufficient rule and guide for life in the word of God. Jesus has fed us well. He has clothed us beautifully. He has given us perfect righteousness in his salvation. He has taken care of us as church. And then fifth and finally, Christ's love for his church is a permanent love. It is sacrificial. It is sanctifying It is practical in its self-loving nature, and it is secure. His love is secure. You don't have to wake up tomorrow fretting and worrying if he's going to love you that day. He's promised that he's going to love you till your dying day. And then on your dying day, you'll see him face to face because he loves you with an everlasting love. Verse 31 of our text, Ephesians 5, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and Hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. There was one who left his father to come and rescue his bride. That is Jesus. And he has and is holding fast to us in our salvation. That Greek word, hold fast, is a word that literally means to be glued to, to cleave to, maybe where we get our statement, honey, you're stuck with me. Is there any portion of Scripture so reassuring, so comforting, and so beautiful, not only of this passage, but also of Romans 8, beginning with verse 31? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, Who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who Indeed, is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. 
We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a beautiful statement. Our earthly marriages with their lifelong promises and commitments are a mere reflection or refraction of the permanence of Christ's own love for us in the gospel. Till death do us part, and the second death cannot touch us. Pastor Gary Thomas said, in a society where relationships are discarded with frightening regularity, Christians can command attention simply by staying married. And when asked why, we can offer the platform of God's message of reconciliation, followed by an invitation, would you like to hear more about this good news of reconciliation? It occurred occurred to me just this week that There is a living sermon on every street where there's a Trinity Bible Fellowship Church home. Your marriage is to be a witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ where you live. And trust me, friends, it's been a hard year for us around here. We know marriage is hard, and at times it breaks down in a fallen world. But it is God's intent that we stick it out. And stick it out can also shine brightly in this corrupt world. So that's what we have for you this morning. This perfect, purifying, profound, purposeful, and permanent sort of love. But the question is, do you know it? Have you been touched by it? Have you entered into a covenant relationship in repentance and trust in Jesus Christ? Saying, I have sinned against you, O God, but I see your provision in Jesus. Do you know this love? If you don't, today can be the day when you become a part of the bride of heaven, where you become a part of the church of Jesus Christ. If you have never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, do not walk out those doors before you do so today. And for those of us that have been walking in this relationship for a week, for a year, for 10 years, or 50 years, when was the last time? That you stop to say to Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for choosing me, knowing that I would never have chosen you. I think that's one way to respond today. Let's pray as we close. Almighty God and Father, thank you. Thank you for all that you have done in the, the design of salvation. Oh, Jesus our Savior and head of the church. Thank you for all that you have done in accomplishing so great a salvation for us. And Holy Spirit, thank you for being that irresistible force that woos us to the Son. Thank you for applying this work of salvation and redemption to us individually out of grace and through faith. Lord, I pray that you would take these words, your word, plant it deep down in our hearts, 
Cause us, Lord, to be a thankful people. Lord, if there's one here who has not yet placed his or her faith in Christ, may today be a day where they come into covenant with Jesus Christ, the bridegroom of heaven. Oh, Lord, we thank you and we praise you for all that you've done through your word today in Jesus' name. Amen.